0: We will read all of Isaiah 61 as we get going. Isaiah 61 is a prophecy about the Messiah, and uh, it's familiar to us because Jesus used verse 1 and the first line in verse 2 to announce the beginning of His ministry. He did that in Luke 4. Now you remember He was in the synagogue on the Lord's Day in His hometown of Nazareth. He took the scroll of Isaiah, He read from it. And he said, this has been fulfilled in your midst. And he sat down. Um, Of course, they looking at him like you're going to need to further elaborate on that. But uh, among other things, what he meant was this is about me. So keep that in mind and follow as I read Isaiah 61, starting in verse one. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. That they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks, foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there will be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness." As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all nations. Amen. All right, I chose this passage because I am writing a paper on it uh, in seminary. <laughs> I figured I'm already doing the research. I might as well teach it somewhere. And in school, the professors want you to read widely. So I end up reading a number of more liberal scholars than I ever would when I'm preparing to teach. Uh, but you know, you have to cite them and interact with them and, and that sort of thing. And it's really actually pretty eye-opening to do that. It's, it's a sad reality because there are these really bright men and women that spent their life's work using the enormous intellect that God gave them to find ways not to believe what the Bible says. It's incredibly disheartening. It's kind of easy to interact with um, because some of it is just so plainly bad, but it is is eye-opening. For example, there's this great big discussion about who is speaking in Isaiah 61. Is it Isaiah the prophet? Is it some other prophet? Is it the Messiah himself? Uh, for those that may not know, I don't want to take for granted Bible knowledge and, and uh, you know, Bible words that may be unfamiliar. I know we, know we know the term Messiah, but do we know what it means? It means anointed one. It is the Hebrew word for the Greek word that we're more, more familiar with, which is Christ. Uh, So, Messiah and Christ, same meaning, anointed one, saying Jesus Christ is the same as saying Jesus Messiah. In the Old Testament, we have uh, lots of passages, lots of prophecies about the Messiah who would come to save God's people and rule God's kingdom. And then in the New Testament, that anointed one, Jesus Christ, arrives on the scene to save God's people and rule God's kingdom. So in terms of the question who is speaking in this passage, there are a number of good reasons to believe it is the Messiah Himself. Number one, the only places in the Old Testament other than this where spirit filling is coupled with anointing, where where spirit filling and anointing are mentioned in conjunction with one another. The only other places you find that are in reference to kingship. That would be 1 Samuel 10 with Saul and 1 Samuel 16 with David. And in line with this, the fact that we have spirit filling with anointing in our passage would suggest that the person speaking is a king. Now, that would not be true about Isaiah the prophet. That would not be true about any other prophet. But it would be true about the Lord Jesus who is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. Number two, there are a number of parallels in our passage with previous uh, what are known as servant songs or servant passages in Isaiah. We're familiar with at least one of those, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, which we uh, reference often. And there, in those servant passages, uh, a number of similarities are they're spoken in the first person like this one. Others also talk about an anointing from the Lord that comes to accomplish this proclamation of good news and bringing freedom to those in captivity. And then they also, uh, many of them end in a hymn of praise, which our passage does as well, verses 10 and 11. So the speaker is a king, not just a prophet. And the speaker is not just any king, but he is the servant king. And number three, the most significant reason to believe the Messiah is speaking in this passage is that we have the advantage from our point of view of having seen this played out because 700 years or so after this passage was recorded, Jesus, the Messiah stood in a synagogue in Nazareth. He read the beginning of it and he said, this is me. So I think there's an important application here and you may not even, you know, that's like, wow, that's uh, this what you have to do when you write a paper, you know, you just have to go with it. But I think there's an important application even about that point uh, for us here. And that is the best way to read the Bible is to interpret scripture with scripture. That's how we arrive at our conclusions is we look at other passages and we find the connectivity and the continuity within the Bible itself, in order to better understand. How does the Bible unfold? How does it develop within itself? That's how we want to read it. So this passage is about the Messiah, and it's from the Messiah, and there are three main points I want to make with that in mind. They are about the Messiah's rule, the Messiah's motivation, and the Messiah's joy. We will spend most of our time talking about the Messiah's rule, but we will touch on the Messiah's motivation and joy as well. So the first aspect of the Messiah's rule I want us to see is his mission. The Messiah's mission. Now keep in mind, again, this is what Jesus used to announce his ministry. This passage summed up the essence of of Jesus' ministry. This describes to us what He is all about. Two words that we could use to sum up Jesus' mission from our passage are preaching and healing. So first, let's look at preaching. Jesus says, Yahweh has anointed me, verse 1, to bring good news, to proclaim liberty, to proclaim the Lord's favor, verse 2. Preaching is at the center of of Jesus' mission. That was the case when He came to earth, and that has continued to be the case since He returned to heaven. Jesus died for our sins. He rose from the grave to make us right with God. He then went back to heaven, seated on the throne to rule over all things, and execute His mission in order to apply to the ends of the earth the salvation that He accomplished in His death and resurrection. So enthroned in heaven, Jesus sent His Spirit to carry on His mission, and preaching remains central to that mission. That's why we're here. That's why you're a Christian. It's because someone told you about Jesus. And having come to love Him and serve Him, we still want and need God's Word taught and preached. Preaching is central to the way God brings us to Christ and grows us in Christ. So you have found a church that proclaims the good news about Jesus, proclaims the liberty that he has secured for his people from Satan, sin and death, proclaims the Lord's favor or grace that God has poured out on his people in Christ. If this church is not your home, if you're trying to find your church home, or maybe you're just checking things out. I think anyone that's been here any length of time would agree with me that that is the kind of place you have come to. A place that above all else wants to have preaching and teaching that is faithful to the Word of God, that makes much of Jesus and communicates the good news of salvation in Him at every age, And every stage from every part of the Bible. That's not the only thing we care about. Uh, For example, we care about life in community. We care about serving the poor. But it all flows downhill from living under the regular proclamation of God's Word. A proclamation that is eager to connect to the good news about Jesus. So that's the first aspect of the Messiah's mission we see in Isaiah 61 is his preaching. And the next is healing. Jesus came to set people free from their sin and bring healing to what sin has broken down. We see these categories in our passage of the poor, the brokenhearted, the captive. And these are spiritual categories. Now in my Bible, and maybe in yours next to the word poor, I have a little note it says it could mean afflicted. Uh, This is not speaking about economic categories, though it could certainly include poor people. It's talking about people who are afflicted either in their sin or because they live in a sin-stained world. You think poor in spirit, like Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. People that have a poverty of spirit, a brokenness in their soul due to the fracture that sin has caused in their lives. Sin has threatened to destroy us, but the Messiah brings good news to the sinner. And not only did he bring good news, he came to bind up the brokenhearted. Now chapter 30 verse 26 parallels this binding up of brokenness with healing wounds. So the image that we should have in our minds is that of bandaging a wound. So put all this together. We were born in captivity to sin. We were bound in a prison of our sin nature that we could not escape. Sin that drove us away from God and threatened to destroy us. Jesus brings good news. And not only does the good news get preached, it is the power of God for salvation. When that preached gospel lands, it brings new life and it brings healing. Because Jesus not only came to redeem us, He also came to restore all that sin had broken. And He came to do it throughout the whole world. In verses 5 and 6, we have this strange language of Strangers tending flocks, foreigners serving as plowmen, vine dressers, eating the wealth of nations. Uh, this is most likely a reference to the expansion of the kingdom beyond Israel, pointing to the fact that the Messiah's mission is global, including Jews and Gentiles who were once considered strangers and foreigners to the people of God. And that is confirmed when you look down in verse 11, it talks about the gospel to the nations. So this passage is describing the transformation of becoming a Christian from captivity to sin to freedom in Christ, from broken to healed, from mourning to gladness. And it is a gospel transformation that is for the whole world, the effect of which verse three tells us produces a strength and stability that only God's people know. In verse 3, we are called oaks of righteousness, which is contrasted with withering oaks of chapter 1. You don't have to turn there, but chapter 128 says, Rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord consumed. Verse 30, you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers. Those rebels and sinners who forsake the Lord, they are like oaks whose leaf withers. Verse 31, the strong shall become tender. That's chapter one of Isaiah. So notice this is speaking about those who forsake the Lord, which means they had some, uh, they were in some way connected to the Lord prior, like church going folk. There's an application here and, and a warning here for us. The Lord's people are oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, meaning it's all grace, it's, it's all according to God's work, He gets the glory, and the work of gospel transformation in us makes us like oaks, oaks of righteousness, deep roots, strong and stable. By the way, that doesn't mean we always feel strong and stable, but it does mean that we're able to endure the harsh winters of trial that the Lord will send and that we will bear fruit in season as the Lord grows us. But there are those among us who will forsake the Lord. Those in this room even who will choose their sin over Him. And we're told here that you will be like an oak whose leaf withers. The death on the inside will show up on the outside. The strong will become tender broken down from a big, strong oak to be nothing more than fire starter. Friends, I've seen this happen time and time again. So do hear the warning. Don't toy with your sin. Kill it before it kills you. Here's another application uh, concerning the Messiah's healing. Remember, already, not yet. Already, not yet. We are already redeemed. We have already been set free from the penalty of our sin and the power of our sin. We have already been planted by the Lord. Our eternities have already been secured. We are not yet fully healed. We are not yet fully restored. So if our growth in Christ is paralleled from a to z our transformation is often slower from point c to d or s to t than we would like but what a miracle that we're on this path of growth at all even to be put on the path to grow in christ we all had to be brought from death in a spiritual graveyard to life that's incredible And so we can get honed in on the struggle of point C to D or point S to T without considering the big picture of what God has done to bring us from death to life and put us on the path of Christian growth at all. The Lord has set us free from our sin. He set us free from its penalty and its power. Your sin is not your master. And the Lord is healing the wounds that sin has caused in us, in those we love, and in all of creation. So catch a vision for the hopefulness of this passage. God is already at work. One day, mourning will be completely replaced with gladness. The wounds that sin has created will be completely healed. One day, there will be no more remaining sin to fight. One more, there will be no more remaining sin in our Christian loved ones to pray for repeatedly. No more brokenness to slog through. So be patient as the Lord moves you along at His perfect pace according to His perfect plan. Uh, before we move beyond the first few verses, I want to at least mention an important observation in verse 2. That is, as the uh, Messiah continues the description of His mission, there's a statement in verse 2 that He came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and, it says, to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. Now, it's interesting that when Jesus quoted this passage in Luke 4, He stopped after Lord's favor. He did not say, in the day of vengeance of our God. Now, that does not mean He doesn't want us to apply this whole passage and connect it to him. But there is something important uh, that we can learn, I think. Many have wondered if the reason he left that out is because it wasn't time yet for the day of vengeance. He was setting out on the beginning of his ministry and he was setting out to communicate the good news to the poor and to bind up the brokenhearted and to set free the captive. And it's not that He's not also going to bring the day of vengeance. It's just that that's not what he was doing at the onset of his ministry. And that's still not what he's doing. So he didn't read that part, which is wonderful to consider as we consider those that we love that still don't know Jesus and and that the door is still open, but it will one day close. And may God implant an urgency in our hearts that reflects that reality. All right, so far in considering the Messiah's rule, we've been focusing on His global mission of preaching and healing. Next, let us consider His people. Uh, we start seeing language about the Messiah's people in the last couple lines of verse 3. It says He transforms us with the gospel so that we may be oaks of righteousness. We talked about that. And then in verse 4, They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. The first observation here is that this is another place in Scripture where we find God's sovereignty alongside man's responsibility. Verse 3, they shall be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. It's His work, it's His doing, so that He may be glorified. Verse 3 points us to God's sovereignty in the work of gospel transformation. But in verse 4, they shall build up the ruins, they shall raise up the devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities. Who are the they? God's people. So verse 4 emphasizes human responsibility. Like Ephesians 2, uh, at the end of Ephesians 2, By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God's sovereignty. But then it goes on to say, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. We see God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And I want us to focus on the work that this passage pushes us towards the language of repairing the ruins had an immediate fulfillment in Israel, but it, it is, does not have, um, it's only fulfillment is not Israel. So the whole book of Isaiah is about the destiny of God's people into exile and after exile. There's a destruction coming to Jerusalem and God is promising restoration but as is usually the case with prophecy, there are layers to its fulfillment. You think of Second uh, Samuel chapter seven and the covenant that God made with David, and there were immediate there was immediate fulfillment in the immediate descendants of David. But ultimately, it was pointing us to the son of David, who is Jesus Christ. So that's often the case. You'll have layers of fulfillment. There was an immediate fulfillment in Israel, but it's pointing us to an even greater fulfillment because the rescue from captivity and the rebuilding the ruins of Jerusalem serves as a foreshadowing of the Messiah's greater rescue from a greater captivity, as well as a foreshadowing to an even greater rebuilding of the ruins. This highlights the fact that the Gospel not only heals and restores individual lives, but brings healing and restoration to whole cities and societies and ultimately will bring healing and restoration to all of creation now you could make the case that the gospel built western civilization i'm not going to try to make that case right now but you could make that case uh on a smaller scale i've mentioned this story in here before i think so i'll be brief just to remind you of it but there's a great story by a man named ramez atalla who was a minister in egypt And he and his wife had a heart for this uh, trash city. It was a dump. It was where all the trash was and people were living there. And it was horrible. These people were beyond poor. And they just had a heart for ministering there. And so the, the more that they ministered there, the more people come to Christ. And when people come to Christ, they start to get a concern for the kind of conditions they're living in. And so they start cleaning up the city. Well, maybe we should have just one area where the trash goes instead of it being everywhere. And then they start getting concerned for, well, maybe we should educate our children. Maybe they would have a hope of, you know, making it out of the trash city. And so they build a school and uh, they, they start a church because so many people uh, start coming to Christ. But, you know, even so, the city, the city still stinks. Uh, literally, it just smells bad. There's still trash. They hadn't figured the whole thing out. So they would go up to the top of the hill or mountain to, for the school and, and recess and the kids to play. And they're playing up there and they discover these old caves. And there's, you know, all these ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics and they're beautiful old caves. Obviously, there used to be some meetings in here. And uh, as more and more people come to Christ, they start having church in the caves. Well, among the caves, there's like eight or ten of them. You can look it up. Ramez Atala, A-T-A-L-L-A-H. Trash city. there's You'll find it on YouTube or wherever. But among the, the caves, they find this open-air... Um, what do you call them? Amphitheater. In that amphitheater, they held a national day of worship in Israel with over 50,000 people. In, in Egypt, I'm sorry. Not in Israel. Um, but it's just an amazing story of the transformation of a place and, and all for the glory of God. Uh, and... That is rebuilding the ruins. And so we see there is a there's a connection for us even today as believers. As believers, we should be looking for opportunities to rebuild the ruins, whether that means whole cities or civilizations or just certain aspects of of our culture and society and families. Um, Where is there chaos and breakdown? That's a good place to invest. There's a great story within our own congregation of that kind of thing. One of our supported ministries is the Grace Institute Partnership. They partner with the Good Shepherd Foundation in Uganda, and they're working to make disciples, to train pastors, to plant churches, and to rebuild an entire community from the ruins. That includes things like clean water, education, uh, teaching about marriage and family, you name it. It's really an incredible story. You get a hold of Will Savell, ask him about it. It's a, it would be a great encouragement to you. So I think the applications for us are many, and I'm not going to touch on all of them, but I have a few ideas. Uh, The last couple years has exposed the fact that our education system is broken. Uh, This made me think of the classical Christian school movement. This is not the only application I'm just illustrating, uh, which was started about 40 years ago in a little church in Idaho. Their pastor, Doug Wilson, started a school for his kids, eventually for his congregation, and community. Then he wrote a book about it and accidentally launched a movement. There are now hundreds of classical Christian schools around the country, not to mention classical Christian homeschoolers and co-ops and all that. He's written a few books about it, and one of them is called Repairing the Ruins. Where do you think he got that language? Again, that doesn't have to be the application that you make, but my point is, the world of education is an area of ruin that is worthy of our investment. Marriage and the family are in ruins in our society. So doing the hard work of building and maintaining a godly marriage and family is not only a blessing for you and your household for generations to come, it is a potent blessing for our community and society. Our government is in ruins. It's a great time for Christians to invest. You name it. Where are the ruins God is moving you to invest in? It's a good question to ask yourself um, as we try to apply this passage. We can't just sit here and decry the breakdown in our society. I mean, we should all lament the condition of our society, but we should also worship the Lord and get to work in His name, seeking to repair what has been broken. Uh, Verse 6 is related to this. It says, You shall be called priests of the Lord, ministers of our God. Now, this isn't just about the people we think of as professional clergy. It's about all Christians. We are a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood, says 1 Peter 2 9. You know, this was a major emphasis in the Protestant Reformation over against the Roman Catholic Church, which taught you needed the priest to get to God, but the The Protestants were saying, no, the common people don't need a priest to get to God because we all have access to God through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. And not only do we have access with God, but we are sent by God to the world. And those are really the two primary aspects of our priesthood. We have access with God. We can go to him and we are sent by God to the world around us. So Parents and grandparents, you are priests to your children and grandchildren. We should train our children and grandchildren that they are priests to their unbelieving friends. We are priests to our neighbors, to our family members, to our co-workers and friends. Now, this doesn't mean we should think highly of ourselves. It means we should humble ourselves and take up this office that God has bestowed upon us and pray to God on their behalf like a priest, We have access with God as His priests. And on the flip side, we should not shy away from ministering the truth into those same spheres of influence. Now, of course, there's wisdom in how we go about that. But let us not shy away. Let us not shrink back as our society shows its malnourishment Let us go forward with the nourishment and truth of God's word. The gospel as central, but the truth applied to every area of life, whether that be gender, marriage, family, education, government, money, recreation, whatever it is, we are God's priests going to the Lord on behalf of the people and ministering to the people on behalf of the Lord. So think about who has God been laying on your heart? Pray for them. Intercede for them. Go before the Lord on their behalf and engage with them if they will let you uh, to live out that priestly function in the advancement of the kingdom. Next, in verse 9, uh, we further this emphasis on the Messiah's people as we think about blessing to generations of His people. It says, Their offspring shall be known among the nations, their descendants in the midst of the peoples. They will be acknowledged, and as, as an offspring the Lord has blessed. You look back on your life and you consider your Christian heritage, and some of you may be first-generation Christians, but for many, and maybe most of us, there was someone that came before us. There was someone that invested in us and uh, their investment in us was significant in us coming to know and love and serve the Lord but don't only look back look forward because we're not only talking about individual gospel transformation we're talking about generational gospel transformation you know that's the way God's covenant has always worked that's what Dr. Young says every time he baptizes a baby that I will be your God and you will be my people, you and your descendants after you. Verse 8 says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. That's a reference to the new covenant. And then the next thing we see in verse 9 is about the descendants of God's people. You know, I think one of the blessings of this whole crazy last few years is uh, the unveiling that has happened in so many different areas of our society. And it's caused parents and grandparents to think generationally. Maybe more than we were before. We woke up and realized they were coming for our kids. That's made us fearful at times. But we have a hopeful word in Isaiah 61. God's gospel transformation is covenantal, generational. He has established covenant with us and our children, and there's nothing Satan can do about it. Now that gets us through the first point and we're almost out of time, but the last two are really quick. Um, As we close, the two points will be brief. the next one is the Messiah's motivation. We find it in verse 8. What drives the Lord Jesus on His mission to save the world? There are a number of things you could say and be right. His love for His Father. His love for His people. But verse 8 needs to be on that list. The Messiah's motivation is His love of justice and hatred of wrong. He looks at what sin has done to the world that He made and He hates it. Hate is an appropriate word. It's in the Bible. It's okay to use it right here. He looks at what is happening in this world that He created and He hates it. And on the other hand, he loves it when things are put right. Friends, who has not felt the fact over the last couple years that the restoration is not yet complete? But one day it will be. And you know how I know that? Because the Lord loves justice and he hates wrong. He hates what sin has done in his world and he delights to put it back. Which leads to the last point, the Messiah's joy. Remember earlier I said uh, one of the reasons we should connect this to other passages about the servant, like the suffering servant, is because it ends in a hymn of praise like those other passages do. But there's a question, even among faithful interpreters, uh, which, you know, they differ on. Who is speaking in verse 10-11 in our hymn of praise? Is it the Messiah? Is it someone else? Some say it's the personification of Zion. It's God's people responding to this great great news. Uh, some say it's a prophet. Some say it's the Messiah. Those that argue against the Messiah say it couldn't be the Messiah because in verse 10, the speaker says that God has clothed him, whoever this him is, in the garments of salvation. So it couldn't be the Messiah. I mean, that sounds right. We know God Uh, is the one that gives the garments of salvation. He doesn't need to be clothed in them like we do, obviously. But there is this passage in Isaiah 59. You can flip back there if you want. And it talks about the Lord wearing garments of salvation. Isaiah 59, verse 15. The Lord saw it and it displeased Him that there was no justice. He saw the condition of the world in sin and it, it displeased Him Verse 16, he saw there was no man to intercede and then his own arm brought him salvation. His righteousness upheld him. So there is no guy that could fix it, but he can fix it. Verse 17, he put, on a righteous, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put garments of vengeance for his clothing. All to say, this passage in Isaiah 59 shows us that God Himself puts on the garments of salvation. Now, in this context, it doesn't mean that He needs the saving, it means He does the saving. Verse 16, He saw that no man could save. Verse 17, He put on the garments of salvation to do the saving. All to say, when we get to chapter 61, it's not a great argument to say the Lord doesn't need the garments of salvation. I mean, the point's good enough. We all agree He doesn't need them like we need them. He doesn't need to be saved. But in this case, the garments are put on by God Himself because He does the saving. And that certainly fits with the rest of chapter 61, which is about the Messiah and His global mission of salvation. So what would it mean... That the, re- the Messiah rejoices and exults in God for being clothed with the garments of salvation. It would mean the Son rejoices in and with the Father because He delights to do the work of salvation that the Father has appointed for Him to do. You know, verse 11 connects us back to the global theme. The Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all nations Jesus is saving the world and He loves it. He rejoices in the work that He is doing. It brings Him great joy to execute this global plan of salvation. And did you know that's the way that Jesus thinks about you and your salvation? He was delighted to secure your eternal redemption in His death and resurrection. It brings him great joy to oversee your growth and maturity he has you right where he wants you at this moment and clothed in the garments of salvation as the only one who can do it he will see you all the way home let's pray Our father, your word is true and it is living and active and powerful and so applicable in all times and seasons. We're thankful for it. Lord Jesus, you are king. There is no other. You are that servant, king, Messiah, and we delight to serve you. Lord, help us to rest in this great news that we have seen here in our passage about your global mission, about how you use your people, about the amazing promises that you make to your people, about how you um, are motivated by your love of, of justice and hatred of wrong, that you will see to it that all things are put right, and that you delight in saving us and seeing us home. I do pray that you would uh, help us to rest in that reality and continue to bless our fellowship tonight in Christ's name. Amen.